Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Hey guys, welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. Your liberal speak easy. This week we've got a great show for you. I went out to Westminster. Uh, I, I met up with uh, Lord Adonis, as you do, as you do these things. And uh, Andrew was very, very generous with his time. We talked uh, Carillion. Obviously, you guys know know all about that fiasco that's going on down there. Uh, and we, we talked about... <laughs> what do you think we talked about? Freaking Brexit. That's, that's for certain. And, and Andrew makes some amazing points, some really salient uh, points. He's incredibly passionate. He's um, he, he's what he's a, he's a you know he's become a, a real leading light in in that in that regard to Brexit. And we yeah we get we get down under it with that one. And uh, yeah, so you're going to really enjoy it. I really I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a long day. I, I went to see AC Grayling. Uh, I had a panel discussion here as well back home in Sydenham. So it's been one heck of a political day. And you know what? I'm not too... I don't feel too bad. You know you, you know me. You know, I'm a gardener. I'm out there in the garden most of the time with the dogs. And it's been one hell of a week. The weather's been beautiful. I don't know where you've been, but it's been stunning over here. Old Londinium. God, the sky has been so deep and blue and beautiful. The clouds, the sunsets, the sunrise. Oh, my goodness. So I am being mindful of this beautiful winter that we are having. So yeah, um, hey, um, Sue Kerr, hello, how you doing? Thanks for um, joining the, the Limehouse podcast, Frey, Fracus, Frey, Frey over here. Susan Susan Mason, hello as well. Helen Thompson, obviously, uh, Professor Helen Thompson, hello, how you doing? And David Haygarth, and yeah, it, it's great to see you, Steve Little, uh, Joe, um, Joe, and and uh, and Bobby over there, and and also obviously Grant Grant Landon. Guys, thanks so much for um, interacting with us this week on on Twitter, and also sending us your questions. Um, yeah, hey, I'm also doing something on Medium. I've started this blog, and it's it's going pretty well. It, it, it's going great guns, in fact. Uh, I'm being quite open on there. I'm talking about my my family, my dad, my uh, my obviously political persuasions you can't you can't get away from that and and you can do that you can find that on medium so that's a blog that i'm running there it's obviously in line with the limehouse podcast so yeah follow 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 my blog enjoy it if you will enjoy it support it share it i think is what i what i fundamentally meant to say but um that that's that that's that out of the way with what i would like to say is last week's podcast it had a really good reception. You know, I, I got some really interesting um, feedback from, from some people. We, we've had a whole host of people follow us on Twitter specifically because of the issue that was raised with Natasha Devon around mental health. And we, I, I thought we, we had a really... I, I opened up a lot. And I think a lot of people that do touch base that base with with Natasha, that, that happens a lot, you know. And I couldn't help myself. I just had to open up about stuff. And it was great. And we also talked... 
so on, on so many levels and so many other subjects and it's really cool if you can go back and have a listen if you haven't already without any further ado here is my chat with Lord Adonis and I will see you on the other side and they're now spending the year fighting Brexit and currently hard at work on a book with Will Hutton, the Observer Economist on Case Against Brexit. Okie dokie. Um, so, Carillion happened. Mm. And me being me, uh, I didn't really get all of it. Mm. Well, me being me, I didn't get all of it either. But, indeed, but, indeed, it's hard to get all of it because it's yeah. such a mess and there's so many different dimensions to it. Yeah. But the big story is uh, you had a very large conglomerate, you know, a company doing lots of different things, right from being a construction company, which is what Carillion was to start with, yeah. through to becoming what's now known in the jargon as a managed services company. That is a company doing everything from free school me- so school meals for for um, for schools through to um, uh, building and operating uh, uh, prisons and hospitals and so on. Yeah. And um, it became very badly managed. It ran out of money because it had bid unwisely for um, contracts too low but actually probably wasn't just that the, con- the, the price it was paying for the contracts was too low it, it was also a problem of management yeah. and uh, including I should say paying its top managers ludicrous sums I mean a chief executive was paid one and a half million last year with a massive cadre of, of top managers who were overpaid so all of that which is the worst side of cor- modern corporate Britain and uh, it went bust and what we're wrestling with now is what happens to all of the state contracts it had, yeah. which, of course, um, affect people's lives day by day. And I suspect the cost of the taxpayer of sorting this out is going to be huge yeah. because you've got to keep those contracts going. Obviously, you've got to have people who are providing the school meals and managing the prisons and building HS2, all these things. And yeah. um, it's all being done in, um, in a great state of panic across Whitehall. That's the... Um, uh, yeah. the abbreviated version of uh, <laughs> but there are lots and lots of other dimensions and there'll it, be inquiries galore. well this is it and, and obviously recently you, you resigned um, I don't know on a sort of a, a two mm. a two tiered mm. um, sort of reasoning mm. but one was obviously because of the way um, things were being handled with um, HS2 is that correct? no with the east coast sorry east line. coast east coast, east coast line, which is the line from the main line from London to York, Newcastle, and Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, because, uh, uh, but actually, it's it, the the issue is quite similar to the one in uh, with Carillion. Uh, what's happened is that this, the, the 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 two companies running the East Coast franchise, Richard Branson's Virgin and Brian Souter's Stagecoach, two hugely uh, wealthy companies headed by billionaires, yeah. um, were making a loss on that contract, quite a significant loss actually, because they overbid for it. So it was a similar situation to Quillian, where you know poor management was leading to big well, losses. Yeah, that's, that's I suppose what I'm trying to sort of really badly mm. get get at is within a, in a space of a few weeks yeah, we've got, had these two huge cases. And actually, there is a common you know, theme between them. It's the common theme is Chris Grayling. Because what Chris Grayling did in the case of the East Coast franchise was to bail it out. What he essentially did was to allow Richard Branson and Brian Souter to rewrite their contracts for running the service, which, you know, I've been Transport Secretary. I would never have done it because I regarded that as a a betrayal of the public interest. Uh, There's no reason why the public should be bailing out Richard Branson and Brian Souter. I can think of many worthy causes for public money at the moment, but they aren't two of them. 
And rather than, than bail out rail companies when I was Transport Secretary, what I did when they failed was to nationalise them, which I think is the right thing. If the private sector can't live up to its contracts, then the state should step in and they certainly shouldn't get a, get new contracts. Well, there is a, a similarity with Carillion because the one of the, the big issues of, of public interest in what's happened in Carillion is that after the company announced that it was in dire straits last July, it announced it to the stock exchange as it's by law obliged to, mm. Uh, the, the government carried on giving it contracts. In particular, the biggest contracts it was given were by, guess who, Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, who gave them huge contracts for building work on HS2 and Network Rail, even though the company appeared to be on the verge of insolvency. So what's going on there? I mean, people must be... I mean, I'm pretty... You know, mm. I'm, I can't focus on too much, mm. right? Brexit is enough mm. in itself, mm. and that mm. tends to just, you know, kind yeah. of lord over everything else pardon the pun and what how does it how, people are, are kind of freaking out here about mm. this how does it make you feel Which, well it makes me feel very angry yeah. uh, uh, I mean I, 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 my view is that uh, Chris Grayling has, hasn't just made mistakes because all ministers make mistakes what he's done is, is, is he has uh, wantonly betrayed the national interest yeah. I mean it was patently obvious that the wrong thing to do on the east coast was to bail out two billionaires and it's very important to understand why he did it which is why I've been going for him in the way I have he didn't you know the problem when you're making when you're a minister you have to make decisions every day is obviously you get some of them wrong but he knew these decisions were wrong the reason he took them was he wasn't prepared to have any public ownership because the right response to the collapse of private companies in the case of both um, uh, East Coast and Carillion was not to bail out those companies but to take immediate and robust public action, which in both cases probably involved the state itself taking over these contracts, not necessarily forever, I mean, you you then have to decide what you're going to do with them, but certainly immediately, so that you're not bailing out failing private companies. Whereas what he did, for straightforward party political reasons, was to bail them out because he wasn't prepared to set up a public company because that might appear to be giving a political point to Jeremy Corbyn. That is, I tell you, I know know, what's going on in this in this game I'm sure you do that is the reason why it happened now that I think is unforgivable it's one thing to have to make a judgement as a minister and to get it wrong and sometimes alas when you get things wrong as a minister the the cost can be quite large but to do it with your eyes open knowing that there was an alternative that would cost less only because you regard yourself as in a cheap political game with with Jeremy Corbyn I think is unforgivable and it's important to to, uh, complete this circle because you, you said, uh, uh, William, that, um, that Brexit was the big thing. It's vital to understand why Chris Grayling is in his job. He is a, an ardent Brexiteer. Mm. He was a, a, a key player in the Brexit campaign and he ran Theresa May's leadership campaign as a Brexiteer to symbolise the new unity of the party. Yeah. He would not be in his job if he weren't a Brexiteer and, crucially, he wouldn't have survived the reshuffle two weeks ago if he wasn't a Brexiteer. Yeah. The reason why he couldn't be moved, even though he had all these disasters written all over him, and not just the disasters in transport, he'd been Justice Secretary. This was the Justice Secretary who destroyed the probation service by forcing it to be privatised, even though his own officials thought very much like East Coast that this was yeah. very poor value for money. And remember, he's also just a secretary who banned prisoners from having books, which is an extraordinary... I mean, if you have to think of the most heartless thing any minister has done in living memory, I think that probably is on the short list. Yeah. But the reason why he survived is because he's a Brexiteer. So the problem which we've got at the moment isn't just 
in my view, a very right-wing government which is putting party before country, but you've got a Whitehall and a government which is so overwhelmed by Brexit, both ideologically and practically, that it can't actually do anything else well at yeah. the moment. And what we've seen with Carillion and what we've seen with the East Coast franchise sums that up both at a political level, because you've got Chris Grayling who's responsible for the lot, but mm. also at an administrative level, because another big part of the story in the case of both Carillion and East Coast, is that the civil service failed. Yeah. I mean, the civil service should have been ringing loud alarm bells in both cases. Why did it not? Because it is so overwhelmed by trying to make this Brexit nonsense work that it doesn't have the bandwidth also to take on Chris Grayling and yeah. see that at least he doesn't you know, trash the country when it comes to the management of... Of um, of the government's interest in, in Carillion and 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 the East Coast franchise, yeah. so as a result, uh, very very adroit billionaires like Richard Branson and Brian Souter are mm. are taking the public for a ride at the moment, yeah. and we're all paying the price. Yeah, no, no, that's eloquently put. You know, that's 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 pretty much how I feel as well, and I, I suppose a lot of people feel. Do you? It's joining up the dots, which is yeah. often difficult. Now, because I, I you know I've done these jobs myself, and I'm. I, I'm, uh, you know, in, still in the thick of politics. I understand who, how these dots are, being, dots are being joined up, and it's very important that we do join them up because it's a critical moment for the country. You yeah. know, these guys who have just destroyed uh, the East Coast franchise and have been responsible for this Carillion catastrophe are the same people who want to take us out of the European Union in 15 months' time. Yeah. And people need to understand that that is, uh, that is just as crazy a project with just as little real justification as all the other things that are going wrong at the moment. Yeah, so, I mean, when these these things are intrinsically linked, you know, pub- public finance and East Coast mm-hmm. Rail, mm-hmm. and then the Brexit thing comes mm-hmm. in, we can't possibly mm-hmm. allow, you know, Chris Grayling to lose, you know, his position because it will upset the cart. Mm-hmm. How... how how does that make? I know how make. I know how how it makes you feel. Mm. What about the public? Well, the, all the signs are the public is is moving against this Brexit thing as well. I mean, the, yeah. the polls now consistently show majority against Brexit. Uh, Theresa May tried to get a mandate for Brexit in the last general election, and she was humiliated. You know, I mean, she she lost seats, votes, and doesn't have a majority in Parliament. So she's the weakest prime minister in the recent history of this country. Yeah. But the real tragedy, which is what we've got to stop, is that the weakest prime minister in the history of this country is doing the the, the most radical. Uh, taking the most radical step that any Prime Minister has taken probably since Churchill, which is to take us out of the European Union. Yeah. Uh, Churchill, of course, wouldn't have taken us out of the European Union. No. I mean, he was a great internationalist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a massive, massive error, and uh, I'm doing everything I can to try and help yeah. stop it. So, you're, you're, obviously, I've had quite a few people on here, mainly blokes ab- ab- above 45, mm. that are sort of, you know. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm one of those. Yeah, <laughs> that are massively. Well, no, actually, Anna Subri, Lynn Featherstone, plenty of mm. um, uh, women also have that share that point. When. When does your gang all come together and really do stuff? Because we well, saw, it's starting to come together. Because we saw Anna, Anna yeah. Subri and uh, Chuka Muna, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Dominic Grieve also coming together yeah. over in Brussels yeah. the other day. Yeah, yeah, it's it's starting to come together. Yeah. I mean, I was in Brussels with Nick Clegg before yeah. Christmas. Anna, as you say, was was there with uh, with Chuka a few days ago. It's starting to come together. We're all working together very closely yeah. uh, across parties as well, which I think is a very healthy thing. Because I've always thought that uh, yeah. that the national interest is more important than party interest. And the fact you've got people like Anna Subri and Ken Clark, and as you say, Nick Clegg, and a lot of Labour people all coming together in the pro-European cause, yeah. I think is a very, very uh, welcome sign. I should say there aren't very many 
Brexiteers coming together outside the Conservative Party, because there aren't many in the, outside the Conservative Party, you know, yeah. of, whatever it is, how many, is it 260 Labour MPs? There are only two who are Brexiteers. Yeah, that exactly. so, you know, right? the Labour Party is pretty well united yeah. on being against Brexit, as are virtually all of the members of the Labour Party, particularly the younger ones. You know, I did a, I'm going around speaking at universities a lot now, so I'm trying to rally the young. And I was at the University of Warwick before Christmas, yeah. and there must have been 50 or 60 members of the Labour Society there. And I said at the beginning, look, none of this business about soft Brexit or, or customs union and single market, which no one can understand, you know, Switzerland and Norway, I don't understand it, so I don't expect anyone else to. Yeah. I said, uh, if we could just stop Brexit completely, how many of you would be in favour? And every hand went up but one. So I said, OK, I'm now going to explain to you how I think it can be done, as it's going to be tough and challenging, but I think it can be done. And I explained how I thought that. Theresa May wouldn't be able to get a majority for the treaty in Parliament, so there would yeah. need to be a referendum. A referendum is completely justified because the people had the first say and therefore the people should have the last say on this whole process. And uh, we had a good discussion. And then I said, uh, well, how many of you actually buy that, think that this could work? And all the same hands went up, all the hands but one. Yeah. So I looked at this guy and said, uh, who, was, who hadn't put up his hand and said, what do I need to do to persuade you that we can stop this? And he said, oh, don't worry about me. He said, I'm the UKIP plant. <laughs> <laughs> that, is what, that is what is going out there. Out yeah. there. I mean, how old are you? I'm 36. Yeah, well, so yeah. you're sort of your generation and younger. Yeah. As you know, I'm, I'm 54. Yeah. It's the mid-30s and younger. Let's be frank, too many of whom haven't been voting recently. You know, yeah. th- we've had too many elections where they didn't vote, and a lot of them didn't vote in the last referendum either. Yeah. Uh, what the last election showed last June is that they're coming out and voting now in massive numbers, and I would expect them to vote in unprecedented numbers if we have the, an, a, another referendum. Yeah. And that's, why, that's why I'm confident that we can win. I, I don't actually think you need to change many people's minds of those above the age of 35. It would be great if we could change people's minds, yeah. but people over the age of 35, let's be frank, tend to be pretty set in their ways. All we need to do for this referendum is to mobilise the rising generation, generations actually, those people who are in their late teens and early 20s and those people who are your age in their mid-30s, to get them registered and voting, and then I believe we'd have a big majority for staying mm. in the European Union, and also, as it happens, I think against a lot of this other nonsense that's happening in the country at the moment. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, I suppose it is about generational politics, well, generational politics, I suppose, but... I mean, it is a bit. Yeah. It is a bit. It, there is a generational thing. Mm. There is a bit of the, the, the generation... Actually, what's quite interesting about it is the very old generation, the people 80 plus, mm. tend to be much more pro-European because they actually were, were in the war. It's quite interesting. You know, the Michael Hesertine generation, yeah. that generation is remarkably pro-European. It's the generation which is below that, which doesn't have a direct experience of the war did go through that period of, let's be frank, uh, uh, national decline, which happened in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Uh, many of them attached to empire and all of that, because that was the period of decolonisation as well, um, but didn't, see, uh, didn't experience as, as part of growing up the huge benefits of the European Union. That's the generation which has turned particularly against. Mm. And they were symbolised, actually characterised by Margaret Thatcher, because Margaret Thatcher herself was of that generation. Margaret Thatcher yeah. never... That, that she, though she was at university at the very end of the war, uh, obviously a woman, she didn't fight in it. She had almost no knowledge of European countries. It's quite, it's quite interesting. I think mm. she, the first time she visited Germany was when she became leader of the Conservative Party in the mid seventies. Yeah. Now the, the young, I mean, I assume you've been around Europe, haven't you? You've, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you go into railing? I, and all that? Do you know what I didn't? Shamefully, or shamefully, I want to. 
Right. But it's it a great thing to do. My generation went into railing. Yeah. You know, I went round and literally spent... Uh, 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 I mean, I love trains, of course, so I would like to have done it anyway. Yeah. But I spent a month around going around Europe when I was 18. It was transformational in my whole thinking. You know, I, mean, yeah. I should never forget arriving in Venice and St. Mark's Square, because often, you know, spending all night sitting up on a train going from, yeah. I think, from from Naples and arriving at sort of six o'clock in the morning. You know, these yeah. were sort of life-changing experiences. And our generation all went through that. Mm. The generation above, by and large, didn't travel much. Mm. Um, uh, they had very little direct experience of Europe. And as Thatcher turned increasingly against Europe on straight nationalist grounds, they did so too. Yeah. I mean, well, how do you feel about... So we've talked about, you know, young people and, and what have you. But what is their legacy? What is the Brexit legacy for those people? Because I know Nick mm. Clegg, obviously, before he lost his seat in the House of Parliament, uh, an MP, oh, God, to one of the worst, you know, possible um, PPCs of all time, um, Jared Amara, yes, yes. just, yeah, like, hideous. But um, what what do you... Th- what's their legacy? What are they really looking at? Fundamentally, without, without, you know... Well, without... they think that they're sort of how restoring British pride and independence. Yeah. Uh, and some of them, I think it's true that they do believe that's what they're doing. Yeah. However, I don't actually think that's the main motivation even of most of the Brexiteers. Nigel Lawson, who's the, you know, who was Margaret Thatcher's Chancellor, and who's been the intellectual force behind the, the, the Thatcherite agenda for the last 30 years, he let the cat out of the bag a few months ago where he said that the real purpose of Brexit was, as he put it, to complete the Thatcher revolution. And it's very important to understand the mindset of a large part of of, of the Thatcherite rights, what they object to in Brussels isn't so much an argument about sovereignty, though they say it's about sovereignty. What they really object to is the fact that Brussels is a regulatory uh, agency which does things like regulating the environment, mm. um, working conditions, you know, the working time directive and all of that. And they're against all that. You know, Thatcher in her Bruges speech, which is what launched modern Euro scepticism in her Bruges speech in 1988, said we did not roll back the frontiers of the mm. state in Britain, only to see them reimposed in Brussels. So for uh, the, the, the right wing of the Conservative Party, who've been driving Brexit all the way through, really, what this has been about, in my view, is largely an anti-state thing, which begins in Brussels, because mm. Brussels is now a big part of the, uh, of, of the regulatory fab- fabric, and rightly so, because we're trying to create a single market, and you can't have a single market without common rules. Yeah. And they don't like a lot of the rules. A lot of the rules are things like environmental standards, working conditions, and things like that, which they want to dismantle. Yeah. So it's very important to understand what's been going on. What's been going on is a massive attack, essentially, mm. on the public realm, on regulation, beginning in Brussels, because that's where a lot of it now takes place. But once they have dismantled it all in Brussels... What are they going to do? They're going to turn against it in in uh, in London. Yeah. The idea that what they want is 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 sovereignty, so that we can uh, um, uh, have um, you know the social chapter and all of that uh, in our domestic law is, of course, um, a, uh, is, is a complete nonsense. Yeah. As soon as we're out of Brussels, what they'd be seeking to do is to dismantle all that social protection in the British Parliament, which of course they can't do at the moment because we're a member of the European Union. Yeah. So the way I see it is, it's very simple. It's always important to understand what's going on. It's very simple. Basically, this whole thing is a right-wing agenda to dismantle collective provision and rules. And because that can't be done as a member of the European Union, the first requirement is that we leave the European Union. All this stuff about sovereignty and all of that is is is, is a pretense. Yeah. 
it's it, it, it's not re- it's not the real reason why we're doing it. But it's good for the Daily Mail. It makes oh, it's great good, for the Daily it, Mail. It makes good but the Daily Mail, yeah. member, it's also part of this this right wing conspiracy. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Daily Mail wants to dismantle all this social protection and environmental protection too. Yeah. But they too know that the way that you sell all that is to go on about you know regaining our birthright and and uh, and not having uh, uh, Brussels pa- ruling our lives. Which it turns out we yeah. could have done anyway. Yeah, I mean, it was just the passport thing completely sums up the whole nonsense. Oh, God, yeah. It's the prime minister depressing. tweets yeah. that now that we have control of uh, of our destiny again, we can we we can restore the blue passport. Well, the interesting thing about the blue passport is nobody under the age of about forty remembers the blue passport. I mean, I do just about. Yeah, I was going to say you. I had one. Ten, ten I had years. One. You had ten years. Too uh, I had one. But but there's. A, the, the generations under 35, the blue passport means nothing to them. It has yeah. no emotional significance whatsoever. On the contrary, having a single European passport, which means you can get in and out of every country easily yeah. without you know, being um, uh, stigmatised and all that, is, yeah. is an important part of what it means. But the thing about it is not only does it not mean anything to that generation, but it actually turned out that if within the European Union we wanted to have a passport of a different colour, yeah. we could have done so anyway. <laughs> it turns out that there is one. Yeah. I think it was it... Who, which what country was it? Um, is it Greece? There is a country that actually has a different coloured passport and chose to do it. Yeah. So not only is the whole thing a pretense, not only does it actually mean nothing to the young at all, but it turns out it's a lie. Yeah. That we could have actually had our own coloured passports within the European Union. It would just have had, you know, European Union on as it does at the front, but a different colour. Well, well maybe the Remain, the Remain uh, campaign lot missed a trick, you know, in the, they could have said, hey, look, we'll also bring back blue passports. I, you know, if, if the easy. price of us staying in the European Union is having blue passports... I, I'm, I'm up for blue passports. I've got, I've got no problem with blue passports. But it's passports. looking more and more like that. Uh, actually, the thing I liked about the old passport wasn't the fact that it was blue, but it was hard. It had a very hard cover, yeah. um, which meant that it was, it was much, uh, much more difficult to lose. It was bigger. It was physically bigger, and yeah. it was hard. And also, if you got in a yeah. sword I'm fight, constantly, you know... Well, you, I, I, you, well, you I, never, well I, I never really got in sword fights. Maybe, oh, really? uh, maybe now that the bio tapestry is going to come back to England too, you know, yeah. it, the, 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 uh, it could serve another purpose. About bloody time, those yeah. French people taking it away yeah, from that's us. Right. Uh, but, it, but I found it hard. I'm constantly mislaying my passport because it's very s- small and, um, and and easy to easy to miss. But the old passport was actually quite hard to to, yeah. to lose. Uh, my, anyway. my, but my, I say for, for me the not heart most heartbreaking thing about all this, but the most frustrating process of Brexit, particularly um, with various amendments, not the the recent one, Dominic Grieve, that was so you know fantastically. Um, Upheld or I don't know whatever um, was um, it, it is the ongoing hand in hand voting through the lobbies that that uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn seems to be whipping the all hell out of his well we voted against uh, the, the key vote in the House of Commons on the withdrawal bill which is now about to come to the House of Lords was on whether there should be a meaningful vote at the end of the negotiations yeah and Labour was united in voting in favour of a change to the bill, which means there's got to be a meaningful vote. And the meaningful vote is a really big deal because that means that the government's got to actually produce some legislation yeah. to take us out of the European Union at the end with the terms in. It's not just enough for them to try and have one single parliamentary vote because the legisla- legislation, of course, can be amended in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And that was the amendment which Dominic Grieve and Anna Subri and co voted with Labour on. And Labour, apart from two uh, Brexiteers... Uh, apart from two, we voted United on that with Dominic Grieve and 11 Conservatives and, yeah. of course, the Lib Dems and the SNP. Yeah. So I, if you look at what um, Jeremy's done, when it's actually come to the crunch, 
he has come down on the pro-European side. Now, of course, I'd like to see him do so more decisively. And in well, particular, yeah. I'd like to come out for a referendum. So I think the only way we can actually stop Brexit is a referendum. I'd love to think that we could do it just by voting in the House of Commons. I think the problem with that, though, is that once you've had a referendum, to reverse the whole process yeah. in a democracy, I think probably does require another referendum. Well, I was going to say, if we get onto yes. that, um, I just wanted to just talk a little bit on, you know, McDonald and, and Corbyn's fundamental loathing of the European no, I don't Union think, structure. I, I don't think they do fundamentally loathe it. No? No, no I, think that's, I, th- I think that's an exaggeration. I think what they I've, I've had people on the show saying that. Yeah, well, I know, th- I know them so, quite well. Yeah. My view of where John and, and Jeremy are on this is that uh, uh, they're not wild with excitement about the single market because what they're worried about is that the rules of the single market mean that it's harder to do large-scale state intervention and nationalisation. Yeah. Now, actually, it is possible to do uh, large-scale um, nationalisation and state intervention within the European Union. Um, uh, what it's not possible to do is uh, is to eliminate all competition or or trade, fair trade, including um, uh, trade between companies within the European Union. So they can get most of what they want but maybe not everything that they want. But my own view is that a Labour government trying to essentially abolish the private sector in large swathes of national life isn't going to happen anyway. Yeah. I mean, not for European reasons, but for domestic reasons. Okay, yeah. I just don't think it's possible to do it domestically. So there is a tension, but what? But there isn't a fundamental problem, because most of what Jeremy and John wants to could be done within the European Union. But the compensating advantages of being in the European Union are huge, mm. absolutely huge. And, and the, the main one by far is that what um, uh, Jeremy and John both want to do is to spend a lot of public money. Mm. Well, there won't be that public money if there's less tax receipts because we're doing a lot less trade and fewer people are in jobs. Yeah. The prime requirement for a successful Labour government is lots of trade and lots of people being in jobs so that they can pay income tax, VAT and all of that. Yeah. And what they do grasp and this is why I think we're going to be fine on this, is that anything that's, that radically undermines the economy is will radically undermine the Labour government. Mm. Because a Labour government that believes in collective provision absolutely requires the tax revenues to be able to do that, yeah. which, which requires a, um, a successful economy. So I think we're going to be OK on this. There's, there's an, an, a debate going on. Part of it, I should say, isn't even to do with the issue of the single market. Part of it is that... Uh, uh, if you're in opposition and you're watching a government make a real mess of things, often the best thing to do is just to stand back, let them make a complete mess, and then come in late. So that's what the that's kind of, that's kind of the the clouded position that the current Labour opposition yes. Is, yes. Is, ado- is adopting. Yes. Now, people like me, yeah. of course, what we're trying to do is to establish a bridgehead, which is going to be vital, I think, in due course, because people yeah. will need to congregate. But, within it, a bridgehead for, for staying uh, in the EU. But I'm, at the moment, quite relaxed about Jeremy and John's position. I, complete, I understand okay. both their concerns, and I understand tactically what they're doing. Yeah. I am confident that at the end of the day, they will come out for a referendum. I just don't see but, any tactics at all. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to be antagonistic. I'm just sort of, you know, whenever I see Diane Abbott or Emily Thornberry on, mm. on Mar. Um, I, I just don't see any sort of tactic at all. But other, well, other than your position, well, not well, your position, but yeah. your your um, summation that basically, yeah, they're they're waiting for the yeah. For what the they're right basically time. doing is using a lot of words to say nothing yes. at the moment. Now, uh, how uh, sickening could that? That's so well, sickening it's not, to me. It's not my type of politics. I, no. I, I use words. Well, to you're say, very direct. Well, I use words to say things, yeah. not not to say nothing. But uh, there is a style of politics that basically 
wants to tread water, and that is where the Labour leadership is at the moment. What it's wanted to do is to tread water and then hope that in a few months' time the situation turns to Labour's advantage. Well, I want them to be like, you know, flag-waving, not necessarily like, you know, European flag in hand, but Mm. like a real battle cry to take it to the the government. That's where where I am too, and that's what I'm busy trying to do. But what I'm very conscious of is that we will not win this war, because there are battles within wars, we will not win the mm. war without the Labour Party and the Labour leadership. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, my, my view is that we should cut Jeremy and, and John some slack at the moment, providing they don't do anything which is actually positively anti-European, and they haven't been doing that. What they've just been doing is essentially yeah. treading water. Yeah. Um, yeah. And treading water at the moment is okay. We've got 15 months till we leave. Actually, it's now coming closer to 14 months because yeah. it's the end of March 2019 and we're in the middle of January now. So it's 14 and a bit months. Uh, th- there's still a bit of time. It's not a lot of time, mm. but the key decisions won't be taken until October, November, because that's when we'll know what Theresa May's terms are for leaving the European Union. And it's at that point that really critical decisions have to be taken. Yeah. They don't have to be taken before. What needs, What's being done before is preparing the ground, and that's what I see myself as doing. What's your... So, I mean, we, we touched on second referendums earlier. Mm. Uh, OK, I'll tell you my preference mm. and then maybe you can yeah. agree or whatever yeah. my, my preference is that we get that uh, the, the final say in that in the uh, house of commons yeah and, and that's totally legitimate and we've, and that's what's going to happen yeah provided the lord the lords you know yeah well, the ratify lord, it yeah so the lords will yeah, yeah lord, a, the lords is not going to stop that's the standard this. yeah um and and then there is, uh, you know, they say whether or not the final deal is a good deal or not, or they need to carry on negotiating for the British, for the better of the British public as representatives of the British public. Or, and then there's a second referendum once we've got a really great deal that everybody's happy about within the House of mm. Commons, and, and then we have a second referendum. Well, I don't see it quite that way, because I think any deal that involves leaving the European Union is going to be a bad deal. I mean, there are bad deals and there are terrible deals. We could end up with a terrible deal. But because we have such a great deal inside the European Union, we're, we're obviously we're central members of the customs union and the single market. We help forge the rules. A lot of the single market is hugely beneficial to Britain. It's all about, it's all about trade in, in services uh, where Britain is very, very strong. And what we've been doing desperately for the last 25 years is trying to bust open European markets, which have been very closed, particularly yeah. the French, who aren't great about allowing competition in their markets. So uh, my view is very simple. Any deal is going to be bad. It's possible we could have an absolutely terrible deal. But once we've got the deal, whether it's bad or terrible, there isn't then much time, because we're not going to know what the deal is until October, because mm. it'll take that long for Theresa May to negotiate it. So I don't see a process of, of then being able to go back and get a better deal. What I think will happen then is uh, that the big, big uh, controversial issue in British politics will be whether that deal should be referred to a referendum. And my view is very simple, it should. And the reason it should is because there's the only people who I think can make a, a proper judgment on the deal are the people, because I don't think the House of Commons in the event will be able to vote against the deal, because voting against the deal would, will have two effects. The first is it will be a direct negative to the referendum of two years ago, because after all we're saying we're not prepared to agree the terms for leaving the European Union. But the second thing is it will almost certainly involve the fall of the government, mm. because if the government can't get the deal through, then which is the single most important thing the government's doing, it would have to call an election. It'd have no choice. Yeah. Now, I don't think that that will happen in practice. Mm-hmm. Even leaving aside the principle, which is that it's hard for the House of Commons to um, to override a referendum, in practice, you're not going to get Conservative MPs mm. taking a step 
the only consequence of which will be an election which Jeremy Corbyn would win. Jeremy Corbyn would be bound to win that election because the election is called because the government has collapsed. I mean, how can the government possibly win that election? Whereas what those Conservative MPs, Dominic Grieve, Anna Subri and Co, they can do, both on principle and in practice, is to vote to refer Theresa May's deal to a referendum. And they can do it on principle because it's democratic. You can hardly say it's undemocratic to to refer this this treaty to to a referendum, since that's the ultimate form of democracy. But also in practice they can do it because it's perfectly possible for the government to survive a referendum. Conservatives will, like the last referendum, take different positions. Mm. And even if the treaty were to be defeated in a referendum, which of course is what I hope will happen, that doesn't mean the government resigns. It just means they, they have to accept the verdict of the people. But wh- where are we after that? I mean, if we're, we're getting close... I don't know whether... When I say we, I, I suppose I mean more mm. remain-minded Well, we have to hold the referendum before March 2019, of course. Yeah. So that, that if the referendum goes against the Theresa May's deal, which is what I hope, then we stay yeah. in. I just can't see that happening. Oh, it's perfectly possible. No, I, no, let me persuade you, William. Yeah. This t- deal will come to Parliament in October, November. We don't leave until uh, March. Uh, Parliament itself determines all the rules for referendums. So it can do that at the same time as it takes a vote in principle to to do it. In practice, remember the last referendum, the last referendum, the actual campaign was about six weeks. Mm. In practice, what would happen is before Christmas, Parliament would agree to the referendum and all of the the legal rules that are needed for it. It would set a date, I would expect, at the end of February. The campaign would start immediately after the new year. Six-week campaign, which is after what you have in general elections, you have in, in referendums, end of February, then one of two things happen. We either vote to support Theresa May's deal, in which case, of course, we are leaving, and that deal just takes effect at the end of March and we leave the European Union, or we vote against. And if we vote against, what's become clear, very clear, over recent weeks, particularly with Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, what he said last week, is so far as our European uh, partners are concerned, if what we do is to decide that we want to withdraw our notice under Article 50 of the of the Lisbon Treaty to, to leave the European Union, yeah. then that's fine by them. All we need to do is, before the 29th of March 2019, withdraw it. It's not a complicated thing to withdraw yeah, it. No, no, it no, simply no, involves no. Theresa May or whoever's Prime Minister thing going to Brussels. Or indeed, they could pick up the phone <laughs> and telephone Donald Tusk as President of the European Council and say, the British people have decided we're not doing this after all. Yeah. We are withdrawing our notice. And it's very clear that European law says under Article 50 of the European communities treaties mm. we can withdraw that notice we don't need anybody's consent to withdraw it just as we mm. freely decided to serve the notice we can freely withdraw it and actually the ref- if the referendum was held in march we could still do that but yeah. i think probably we need to give a bit of space well do you, do you think um that if that were the case what you've described there it's not necessarily about the second referendum it's about the the constant build-up of positivity f- from people like Michel Barnier and Donald mm. Tusk that can say, well, look, if you remain, right, with us, mm. this is what we're going to give you, and say it loud and clear. Like, as a po- like, yeah, f- just for that's example. Part of it. But that's all part of the end game too. Yeah. Because if we get to the situation where there's a referendum, what people will ask is, well, if we stay, what's the deal there? Well, yeah, because that's it's not... True. Because if... You have people yeah. like Knight. I don't. I don't yeah. hate mentioning his name. Yeah. Because he's such a piece of mm. you know what. And but yeah, Farage. Yeah. He'll just say, 
well, well you just keep on voting until you get the result you want you just keep, sorry keep on having referendums yeah. until you get the result mm. you know look at look at Ireland yeah. look at Greece yeah. look at Italy yeah. uh, you know. but actually that isn't an argument against democracy you know, democracy does involve people making decisions at different times. Yeah. We don't say, you know, there were two years between the last two general elections. We had a general election in 2015 and a general election in 2017. The next referendum will actually be after a longer period than the previous referendum. It's likely to be about two and a half years yeah. after. So that argument doesn't hold. But in any case, nobody but nobody thinks that if we stay in the European Union now, you know, so we vote, that any conceivable government over the next 20 to 30 years is going to want another referendum. Yeah. See, the only reason this referendum happened was because David Cameron forced the British people to have it. There wasn't actually any great groundswell. You know, Europe was number 20 on people's list of priorities until he actually forced them. And the reason he forced them to have it was because of an internal argument inside the Conservative Party, which was becoming uncontrollable. What essentially had happened is that Nigel Farage had done a reverse takeover of a large part of the Conservative Party. Mm. That's what happened. Though UKIP itself was, of course, was, was... was was united in being against the European Union. What they'd effectively done by fighting them in elections and all that was they'd converted about half of the Conservative Party to the cause too. (laughs) But remember, the Conservative Party is an organisation with, at the last count, about 70,000 members. Mm. The idea that they... The, the whole future of this country should be determined by an argument inside the Conservative Party. You know, a country of, of, um, of nearly 60 million people should yeah. have its, its future decided by an argument within what's essentially a right-wing club of 70,000 people. Which has been widened to the sort of demographic that exactly. of, of, uh, around immigration, yeah. which we haven't yeah. actually, meant, actually touched on at all. Yeah. We managed to somehow circumnavigate that, which is... When I literally mm. in Parliament Square mm. back in, I just said Parliament Square, mm. God, very posh. Mm. Um, David Lammy uh, was on a, a back of a lorry and along with a bunch of other uh, Remainers, and I was there, and it was great. The sun was mm. out, and he was saying that it, it's let's not, you know, mince our words. Let's let's not forget this was a racist vote. Mm. This was, mm. you know, about immigration. Let's not get away from that. Mm. How do you change, right? Mm. And this is one of my questions. Fifty. 52% of mm. people's whatever mm. whatever freaking mm. percentage yeah. we need how do you take those that those people with you who are so vehemently opposed as I say I think we can we can win the next referendum without anyone changing their mind because as I say particularly the young who haven't voted and of course there are a lot more of them because you know, we've got a rising generation but don't you young. think you need to change people's well, minds I want to change people's mind but you do take decisions in a democracy by majority and yeah. we're not going to change all of their minds I hope we can change quite a lot of their minds one of the big things about the last two years of course is that immigration has come down sharply anyway it's, it, and opinion polls show that it's reducing rapidly as an issue of concern. Um, net net migration, you know, the, the the difference between the number of Brits who are leaving to go to the European Union and the number of, of of other citizens of the European Union coming here, that's come down very sharply yeah. in the last. So my own in, my own instinct is that immigration will be a much less significant issue yeah. in the next referendum than it was in the last. But in any event. I think people, and now they've seen the ugly face of uh, of UKIP, I think they're, they're, they're less impressed by it. Yeah. I just think, so. it, I, I don't know, my, my personal preference is that we people work really hard on changing the minds of, of uh, people mm. that I know, mm. that, you know that, that are above a certain age, that do think yeah. that this country's gone to, to the dogs and yeah. what have you. Yeah, well, that... that, that well, it's not gone to the dogs. That's an exaggeration. Uh, but that's some of the. Well, it's, it's been what I've described now uh, several times as, as a nationalist spasm. 
Well, so I wanted to ask yeah. you about that. And, because, and that happens yeah. to countries. See, nationalism, there's a, great, there's a big difference in patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is good. You know, believing that your, your country is basically a good thing and yeah. supporting it is a good thing to do. Nationalism, which means your country at the expense of others and being overtly xenophobic and racist, that's a bad thing. But the problem is that because patriotism can morph into nationalism quite easily, you've constantly got to be in your guard against the one leading to the other. And what's been happening, of course, is that the, con- the right wing of the Conservative Party and UKIP have been positively encouraging mm. this nationalist spasm. That's what lies under beneath uh, a lot of what's been happening in the last few years. Yeah. And, and, and we, I think we just need to call it out and stop yeah. it. And with, and with Donald Trump, obviously, oh, as well. Exactly. I, I know Playing you... exactly the same yeah. same card in, in in the states before before we and of course it's no accident he is the great friend of Nigel Farage well that's you know the, the picture yeah. which we want everywhere in the next referendum is the one of Farage and Trump in Trump towers in front of that golden door yeah with both smiling after Trump won the election that is not where the British people are at all oh it's that just is not vile yeah my god but before um, mm. you've been so generous with your time I did want to ask you about a wonderful article you wrote in the New European mm. um, about what Lord Attlee would do. Yeah. Um, well, what he'd do now is, uh, which, which is what I believe profoundly... Sorry, Lord Attlee? Where did that Clement come from? Attlee. Yeah, Clement, Clement Attlee. He did become Lord Attlee. Yeah. yeah. What, he sh- what, what, sh- what we should do is have a big, bold government that tackles the social crisis, which is affecting Britain, the big problems of housing, education, health, jobs, schools in large parts of the country, get to grips with those, but stay in the European European Union and stop scapegoating foreigners. That's yeah. what should happen, yeah. and that's what I, I'm, I call the new Atlee settlement, which is be robustly internationalist but radical in dealing with the social problems that the country faces. Yeah. And that's a very simple proposition. It's the correct proposition. I think we can win through. Yeah, no, it's cool. I love, I love, loved reading that, and I know plenty of people with the new European who read it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's well, good. Dug in. But Andrew, thanks so okay. much for your time. Stay in touch. It's good. So, where are you off to now? Um, I don't know. Uh, home, and then back into chat with AC Grayling. Ah, so right. home and back in. Home well, you're, doing an, you're doing an interview with. Yeah. Anyway, good. Yeah. We'll give him my regards. Mega pro Remainer. Yeah. 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 No, he's good. He and I have a difference on uh, the referendum. I'm not sure whether he thinks that we should have a referendum, but he, he doesn't like the idea that Parliament can't stop yeah. Brexit. And as a matter of law, of course, he's right. Parliament couldn't legally stop Brexit. The yeah. question is whether, as a matter of practice, it's likely to do so. Yeah. And my view is that it's not likely to do so because you won't get Conservatives voting to basically bring Mrs May's government down. No, exactly. And yeah. that's the fundamental reason why I don't yeah. think we, Parliament will stop it. Yeah. And you've got to have Conservatives doing it, because otherwise there isn't a majority. We've got 11 of them, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Well, yeah. well we've got... No but, no, but they won't vote against the treaty. No. Let's be clear, what the 11 voted for before Christmas was a procedural thing, that there should be a final say. Yeah. They didn't say that they would then vote against the treaty. Yeah. My own view is if it comes to the crunch on the treaty, they'll vote with the government because they won't, won't vote to put Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street. No. You know, even something like Dominic Grieve is not going to vote to make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister, no. I'm afraid. No. Could, you, could you say goodbye to the listeners as well? Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's been great... Uh, being on the podcast, William Porteous is a great guy. He's standing up for the biggest and most important <laughs> cause in Britain today, which is keeping us as a European country and not a xenophobic island in the middle of the Atlantic, pretending that we're closer to Donald Trump than we are to France and Germany. Yeah. And uh, I hope you all enjoyed listening to this. Yeah, everyone would have. They, they, Bye. Big fans. Right, thank you. Great. Everybody's big fans. 
Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, you, I, I knew you would, you know. Anyway, look, you guys have um, you got, you got shit to get on with, so that's cool. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Like I said, if you can share it, rate us on iTunes, whatever, whatever, however you, you, you feel you can do that, that would be absolutely flipping amazing. You know, we really do want to build this show, build the audience, get it and, and see how far we can take it. And, and the only way we can do that is by you guys sharing. Honestly, that is the only way I can do this. We, I can ask my guests to tweet it. I can ask the guests to, to say nice things about it. But fundamentally, that really doesn't do an awful lot. The only way we can do it is through like your DIY punk ways of doing it, man. You know, If you want to, stand in front of the mirror and pretend to be Johnny Rotten. You know, and, and, and DIY style podcast. That's how we do it, okay? It's your help. So thank you so much if you have already. But if you haven't, please give it a go. It will make you feel better. And uh, yeah, and obviously you can donate and, and, and give to the show if you like. And that's you can do that via patreon.com. Anyway, have a great rest of your week. It's been great having you here. I've really enjoyed it. You, you've been wonderful as always. And here's to the good vibes of the summer. Three days of beautiful sun to, uh, this week. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah, let's let's thank the heavens for that, or whatever's out there. You know, jeez, man. Let's thank David Bowie. He's up there somewhere. Okay, sunning down on us for the whole of January. Thank you, David. Whole of January. Thank you, David. Whole of January.